0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our own Alex Cortez loves to regularly bring us great stories about human freedom and what can happen when it's unleashed in our free economy. And let's take a listen to Alex's latest report. Tonight's
1: first place winner will receive $1,500 to grow their business and further their education. Second place will be awarded $1,000, and third place $500. In addition, both first and second place winners will be flown to New York City in October to attend Nifty's National Youth Entrepreneurship Challenge and compete for the grand prize package.
2: May 3rd, 2017, high school students in the St. Louis, Missouri region competed for real money. Hello, my name is Damon McKinney. It is my business
3: partner.
4: Ron right Leary.
2: And for real businesses that they wanted to create. We're here to introduce our business partner, the Double Backer Pack. The
4: Double Backer Pack. what's that?
2: Let me explain. It was just like Shark Tank. I like cash flow. Love it. I like the way As it rolls off my lips. Story, cash flow. It. They presented before judges. To stop pretending and start profending. Woo! Love it, baby. Right, mate, the judges question them. Tony, how much do they cost? They cost right now. They're four ninety nine ninety five. In the judges decided.
5: It's I love you, but I'm out. I'll, I'll give you the three hundred k for ten percent, but I don't want to
0: go through all this. If you want to work with me, say yes, and if not, I'll defer to everybody else. Done. Done.
2: I drove up five hours from our studio in Oxford, Mississippi to get in on the action, to meet these students who were courageous enough to put themselves out there and be scrutinized. The competition started at 6.30 p.m. and I arrived early at 12 p.m. to meet one of the competitors before their big night.
1: To present their business, please welcome Raheem Larry and Damon McKenney
0: from Normandy High School.
2: That's all you're going to hear from their big night for now. Oh, yeah, it's a tease. I was also there early to meet their teacher, Obino Coley, who was teaching their entrepreneurship class, where they learned how to create their business. And here is my report from that afternoon. I'm in my car outside of Normandy High School uh, here in the St. Louis area. And a couple of years ago, the St. Louis uh, Post-Dispatch, the main newspaper here, said this was the most dangerous high school in the area, and the population in the area has declined by almost five-fold. More businesses here are shut than are open. There's more vacant storefronts than there are open storefronts. Uh, But There's a glimmer of promise here at this school in this entrepreneurship class uh, that's designed by NIFTY, the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, and I wanted to check it out. Nifty focuses on bringing their entrepreneurship courses and summer boot camps to students in economically disadvantaged areas, like the ones surrounding Normandy High. And over 500,000 students have gone through their programs to date. Hey, hey Mr. Coley, Alex. Oh, Alex. Nice to meet okay. you. Hey, uh, interview. Yeah, yeah. I got, got you you really? got... no. Hey,
1: how
0: are you?
2: Hey. Hey. I'm Alex. California. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Nice to you.
0: What's your name? What is it? Raheem.
2: Raheem? JMI. Is it your lunch time? Yes. Yeah, so you decided to practice instead. That's
0: good. <laughs> yeah, I know. I like it.
2: I first asked them about their childhood, and here's what Raheem thought was important to tell me.
4: I'm born from Atlanta, originally Atlanta, Georgia, and I think that's where I first started being afraid of bees.
2: A bees? Yeah. I didn't expect you to say that. No, <laughs> is this like a huge fear of yours? Yeah, like
4: whenever I said bee, i run away <laughs> from that spot. I don't like bee. But,
2: well, this is really on the top of your mind. I'm, when I, I ask you about your childhood, the first thing you say is, uh, yeah. I'm afraid of bees.
4: <laughs> I never got stung in the London, but like the, I they just were flying around me and I didn't like the
2: well, Raheem wasn't going to be a B entrepreneur, but I was curious what these guys' experience with entrepreneurship was like before taking this class. Have you guys known any entrepreneurs growing up? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think so either. No. And now they do. Their class traveled to meet an entrepreneur in his 3D printing shop, something I haven't seen yet and am pretty jealous about. And many of the competition's judges are entrepreneurs too. Including the owner of St. Louis's semi-pro women's basketball team, the Surge, and although these guys hadn't really thought about entrepreneurship, they were in many ways already living it out before the class. Here's Raheem. Cut grass
4: and uh, yeah. shovel snow, but lately we ain't had a great winter.
2: <laughs> oh, you mean you didn't have a great winter in terms of a lot of snow? Yeah, yeah. most people would not consider that a great winter.
4: It was a great winter when I was trying to shovel snow. <laughs>
2: For many, many years, this 14-year-old's been hustling like this.
4: Like you want the baseball card? I get it to you for a dollar.
2: <laughs> Raheem just didn't know about the economics of his enterprising. And thanks to his class, he now does and is saying things like this.
4: It's fun to, like, sell something. Like, you get, oh, I just sold that for $40. That's a big, big margin there. Yeah.
2: Profit margin is new to his vocabulary. How awesome. And it's a lesson that will stay with him for the rest of his life. Concepts like profit margin that involve math make math real to students, often for the very first time in their lives. Because it's now not just something that's theoretical that they feel indifferent about. They now know that it's something that can actually affect them in their pocketbooks.
4: At the beginning, we had, like, to make our own. Uh, project, uh, like our own invention out of uh, the materials that we had used, but we did we did it, but it was I wasn't really serious. Like at the beginning of school, I wasn't really serious about art promotion.
2: You weren't very serious about it at the beginning of class, and you become a lot more serious about it. Uh huh. Why?
4: Really, I think that day I really was surprised about my business. I really thought it was a great idea
2: surprised about what this idea could mean for his future and it helped him realize the potential he had inside of himself that's the power of this class and a great idea
0: and when we come back more with alex and more with these young men and with nifty and the great work they're doing across this country this is our american stories these boys stories when we continue is Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex's story of two high schoolers in the St. Louis area, Rahim and Damon. And this is a tough neighborhood, but they're up to something really interesting, something unexpected. And it's an awesome entrepreneurship class that allowed all this to happen, sponsored by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Let's go back.
2: student in the nifty entrepreneurship class has to develop their very own business idea and write an entire business plan for it. Raheem's teacher told me that he had a lot of business ideas and frequently would email him at night with his latest one, which in his mind was always the greatest one, of course. That is, until another one came around. Have you thought about any businesses that you want to create?
4: Uh, at first I was doing I wanted to do waterproof earbuds like earbuds where you could go swimming
2: underwater? Yeah, and that- it
4: wouldn't like mess up your ear or let you get or nothing like it actually waterproof not water resistant and stuff like that but then I had one day I just actually I had a basketball game and I asked my cousin could he hold some of my stuff he was like nah and I was like alright forget it I'll just take two backpacks and then I just got they had double like it was two sides and double backpacker all day
2: like many great business ideas Brahim's came from a need that he had in everyday life and for him it was because of an unkind cousin who he ought to think now the double backer packer as they call it has one backpack on your back and another on your chest and they're connected by shoulder straps and what an apt and catchy name the double backer packer and older parents have especially loved this idea because it's more even distribution of book bag weight was a solution that their kids didn't have and have paid the price for.
4: They tell us that they uh, children had their problem when they were in school and now they got back problems. So they give us encouragement.
2: Now Rahim had enough foresight to know that he needed a partner. He was good at selling, but he wasn't a designer. And well, Damon was. You said you came up with the idea. Are you guys 50-50 partners then, or do you have more? 50-50. 50-50. Yeah. Did you guys have to talk about that, or was it just assumed? We didn't
4: really talk about it. Yeah. yeah. We just
2: yeah. decided. 50-50. Well, it's very generous of you when you came up with the idea. I'm just messing around. <laughs> you really need both, right? You need the design, and you need the idea, and you need someone who's good with the numbers. And
4: It's always good to have two people. Like, you you might have a good idea, but as one person you probably won't. Succeed as much as you would if you had two people. I think if I didn't like have a partner, I don't think I would have been as serious as I am now.
2: Just like a motivating factor, like yeah. you can't let him down?
4: Yeah, like. Like, cause at first, I'd probably slack off sometimes at the work. But if I got a partner, they encourage me, or they get something done, I'll get something done another time. Yeah. Or we just both work it out.
2: Once they became partners, they did some critical market research, also a new term to them. Was there a market need for the product outside of their own personal need? Or what parents thought their kids need? And we see people in our own school wearing two book bags. But people they, you see people yeah. in school wearing two book bags?
3: Not front back, but on a back. And then like they be hunching over someone's for sports or after yeah, school like activities they, or they have something going they wear
4: two backpacks. But it ain't, they product. it ain't a product, it ain't a
3: product, it's just them wearing two bags. They just had two separate bags and putting all weight on their nobody thought bag. of it.
4: That's why we're trying to get a patent.
2: <laughs> These guys are trying to get a patent. They are on their game. Raheem actually went to the U.S. Patent Office's website. But he found the government website to be confusing. Go figure in how discouraging for a young entrepreneur. Did you have to do a competitive analysis in, in your part of your business plan? Like what else is out there in the market, and if anyone comes close? Like indirect
4: competitors?
2: We
3: have no direct competitors, but we do have two major indirect competitors. Eastport. Eastport
2: Eastport makes normal backpacks for students, and Nike makes athletic bags for athletes. But no one is targeting both in one transaction. Until now, and thus student-athletes as their target market. Another concept they now know. But before selling to their target market, they got to figure out how to actually make these things. We're not going to actually make the book bags, but we
3: going to buy it. Like, half the people make it for us. Yep. And then, like, we going to design it. And we we're our own
4: still product. in the market said Yeah.
2: These guys are a riot. They're still in market research for their manufacturer, but they think they got a pretty good idea of how much it's gonna cost. How about pricing? Have you guys settled on a price for the forty-nine? Forty-nine. 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 Okay. And how much is uh, materials?
4: Seven dollars. Seven dollars ten
3: cents for materials and five dollars Wow. So that's a margin of thirty-seven dollars eighty. A um- 8 I mean it's good.
2: You guys got your costs exactly down. Mm-hmm. Talk about precise! They are clearly ready for their big competition, but is the world ready for their big idea? Have you talked to people in the school or your friends about this idea? We took surveys.
4: Most time they say it's a stupid idea, but I tell them just wait on. Okay. It'd be most of my most of my friends, but <laughs> I be telling them it's gonna be something.
2: How are you gonna convince people to use it? Like it's it's such a foreign idea to people. We're how, gonna, how are you going to make it
4: look fashionable?
2: It's not just going to be like
3: a regular little book bag. It's going to be a regular book bag. But I, it's not going to be a regular book bag on the front. where It's
2: going to look stylish. It's going to make you want to wear it. Right. So is it just you guys are going to wear on the backpacks and everyone suddenly be like, wow, that's interesting? Or are you going to pay some, try to get some celebrities? we going to get Beyonce to wear. You know, we're gonna wear it. Honestly, we don't get anything to LeBron
4: wear. Honestly, LeBron James.
2: Yeah. You know that some people will literally send LeBron James this backpack for free. And try to get him to use it. People take pictures of it in public, and all of a sudden, your your business is skyrocketing.
3: We gonna get LeBron James, Beyonce to be in one picture, one and be like, hey, she'll be saying, I'm a single lady, and they go, see niggas gonna buy it. He gonna make some threes, and people do. He, he gonna say, he's
4: gonna say, they take us. Uh, would you like a Sprite you're going to say would you like a double backpacker backer backer. you know how he's that
3: he
1: that. What is he going to say
4: would you instead of saying would you like a Sprite cause you know his Sprite commercial <laughs> instead he'll say would you like a double pack?
3: I would never ask you to drink this right. I would ask you to buy no back backpacker I God you know, I bet that up I would never tell you to drink this Sprite I'd ask you I'd tell you to buy no backpack backpacker I'd ask you to drink this Sprite
4: this is going to be great
2: that's the bottom line, right? This <laughs> is gonna be great.
4: Yeah, and i like probably three generations of our family will not have to work. <laughs>
2: except, that you, except that you want them to work. I mean, you know that story. Passed that's so. a business.
4: And that's why we created an LLC. You already created one? No, not yet. We that's what we do. to be the business. We make an LLC so that because our partnership,
2: once both of us die, can't pass it on to nobody. How, how do you guys know about LLCs? Like class. Class. in this class. <laughs> I didn't know what an LLC was at your age. You <laughs> got so class. I
4: think I did it first. I used to see LLC on things, but I never. I
3: wonder what did. it was. Yeah, we go make an empire.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised your school even has an entrepreneurship class. You know the story.
4: I think we got it that? last year. Okay. Last
2: you know
4: that
0: year most schools don't
2: year. have that. They don't. No. I ain't know, there. My school didn't have one. It's pretty pretty rare to have one. Yeah, you know, most of them just teach you know history, math, and. Um, tell me about Mr. Coley. What do you you know really like or appreciate
3: about him? I say his personality. He' a cool teacher. One of my one of my best teachers, I say. He like he's serious, but at the same time, like. He's he not one of those teachers that just say, do this, do that. He actually get in touch with the work. Like, he helps you understand something you don't understand. And like he not just one of those teachers that I sit back be like, this is what I told you to do. And like. So he a pretty cool teacher. He helps you understand what you don't understand.
2: He clearly makes a lot of time for you guys. Is it, was it his lunch period as well when yeah. I walked in? And he's yeah. he's giving away his lunch period to, mm-hmm. to be with you guys? Yeah.
0: And when we come back, the final segment, these two young men learning about things that they could only learn thanks to the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship's work in so many schools across this country. And my goodness, to hear these guys talk about the future, to talk about margins, margins in, in a public school, what a good thing. And also about prices and pricing. And by the way, to hear all that we do Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we tell so many great business stories there as well. My goodness, the Cornelius Vanderbilt hour is priceless. Sam Walton's hour, Bernie Marcus's, who is the founder, the co-founder of Home Depot, and all of our great businesses started with an idea, an idea. By the way, those ideas protected by patent laws, protected by all kinds of things, and protected by property rights conferred by the Constitution itself. This is Our American Stories. The story of these two young men comes to a conclusion in St. Louis after these commercial messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex's story of high schoolers Raheem Larry and Damon McKinney and their business, the Double Backer Packer. That's their pitch. And we're now on to the fun part, the regional sale, that regional pitch competition they're playing in, where they get a chance to win real money and go to New York City for the national competition.
5: Are you ready for this? Uh Uh-huh.
2: To get to tonight's regional competition, Raheem and Damon have already won the pitch competitions for their school and for the city of St. Louis, where they won $100. She uh, plans on spending it, or, or saving it. It doesn't just have to be spending. I know I gotta pay my
4: phone bill.
2: You pay your own phone bill? Your parents don't pay for it? See, my mom, she's
4: she kind of cheap, though. She, she barely, she barely <laughs> run about I mean her phone supposed to be smart but it's really not as smart. Does it do have... crazy things in crazy <laughs> times. But I, I she she said I'm like she said I need to be more responsible and not dependent on it.
2: So did she say, I'm only gonna get you a smartphone if you no. pay for it? No, I just bought my I bought my own phone. You bought it on your own. Yeah. So she wasn't gonna get your a phone.
4: Sometimes she like when we have attitudes, sometimes she you know, she might be grimy. And I pay the phone bill, but so I just bought my own phone, my own account. But I I paid every bill so far.
2: Wow. So you you did she did get you your own phone, no? I
4: pay I pay for it with my report card money.
2: So if you get uh, good grades, yeah. Yeah. What do you got? What's your GPA?
4: Right now, I think it's like three point
2: two, but it's usually 3. Right. 3.6 3.7. What's going
4: on this last semester? Slowing down. Yeah. Things, cause last, like, school almost helped I think all right. it's slacking up, but I, I got good grades for the most part.
2: What do you get, like per A or per B? What's your
4: most reward? time? I get mainly all A's and B's, but I get.
2: What do you get for an A? What's your reward?
4: Oh, I do It's at church. I don't
2: know. Oh, it's a church. Yeah. Your church does this. Uh, so your but gives you money for good like usually, every time I get like a hundred fifty dollars most. Okay.
4: They just started this last, like two years ago last wow. year.
3: That's awesome. You know, when I love to church for it though. Huh? I love church for my birthday. Everybody give you a dollar or more. You just like everybody. i to all those
2: people. On your birthday, they all yeah. give you a dollar. Uh huh. Or that, more, just like they I just don't know what kind of churches you, you guys go to. My I churches don't do any of this stuff. <laughs> <Like a church.
4: laughs>
3: just I just
2: g- I just go and give money at church. <laughs> <laughs> All kidding aside, tonight's stakes are the highest they've ever been for these guys. A $1,500 grand prize in the first and second prizes both earn a trip to New York City, which would be their very first trip to the Big Apple, and an opportunity to compete for a $25,000 grand prize in the national nifty competition.
4: Accidentally fail tonight. Well, tonight. Together. Accidentally
2: yeah. fail. Yeah. That's the only way you're gonna fail. Just accidentally.
4: Because <laughs> we, we might mess It might. It most likely'll be our fault, like a little silly mistake, and they covered it more better than we did. So if we don't do a great job tonight, then we'll. Uh, I'll probably think about striking. Okay. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I don't think most people think about Shark Tank as a backup option. <laughs> Anyways, to close, I asked Raheem and Damon if they were nervous for the biggest night of their lives.
4: When they call your name or they say it's your turn, it's just nervous walking. But when you get to talking to them, it's sort of, of like
3: trying to anticipate the drop on, like, say you your first time driving a roller coaster, trying to anticipate when a big drop gonna going. come. So it's like you feel all the pressure.
2: And when it's dark, you just, okay, this ain't that bad. And you just can go with it. It's now 6 p.m. The competition is about to start. I'm in the pre reception gathering interviewing folks and ran into this guy. So, what's your name? Antoine McKinney. Okay. And why are you here, Antoine? Oh, uh, my son. Uh, he's doing a double book bag. Oh, great. Double I interviewed pack. your son this morning. Did you? Which one's yours? They mine, McKinney. Oh, yeah, yeah. How proud are you? I'm proud. Yeah? I'm proud. You ever think you would be doing this? This? No,
3: no. I never thought I'd be part of this. (laughs) (laughs) He's the first.
2: Oh, man. Have you seen him present already before? Yes. Were you nervous the first time you presented for him? No. No? No. Why not? It's a a growing experience for him. Yeah? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) And a good low-risk way to do it, too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So what do you think about his idea? I think
3: it's brilliant. It's the first. I've never seen one. Yeah. That's the best one I've seen. You see them? They got them right there. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. They're
2: detachable.
3: Bluetooth, compatible.
2: (laughs) I think Damon's dad is ready to join their sales force. I turned off my microphone and was about to find the next person to talk to when Antoine said something unexpected, and I asked him to say it again. He inspires me. He, your son inspires you. Yes. You're the grown adult, and he inspires you. Yes. How? This
3: is unbelievable what he did. I mean, this invention that he came up with is just incredible.
2: I, I wouldn't like have thought to that. Like you're crying. I can yes. see it in your eyes. Yes.
3: Yes. Very proud. Yeah. I'm proud. I'm happy. I inspire me that he's doing something. Yeah. He's going for a goal. He wants something out of life. Oh man. He's not like his other brothers. I'll tell you that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then. It was showtime.
3: Hello, my name is Damon McKinney. It is my business partner.
4: Ron Haley.
3: And we're here to introduce our business product, the Double Backup Packer.
4: The Double Backup Packer? What's that?
2: Let me explain. The guys did a great job with their eight and a half minute presentation. But then they had to face the judges.
5: So who would be your first ambassador?
4: So you have this awesome backpack. Who's the first person you're going to go to at your school to ask for wear this post on social media? Maybe the athletic director. Is the athletic director going to walk around with a double backpacker? I don't know. You can target your star uh, athletes. The yeah. press, yeah. The press might
3: do go. it. We're going to target our star athletes, I see said.
4: Targeting star athletes. You going can target your star athletes and your captains. Um, that's who you're going to have as your brand ambassadors. That way, they're doing the coolest thing and everyone's going to gravitate. Judges, your
0: time is up. Thank you. What a
2: learning experience for Raheem and Damon to have experienced entrepreneurs not just judge them but to help them think through their venture. And once all the presentations were done, the judges deliberated behind closed doors and came out for the moment everyone had been waiting for. The next two finalists are both qualifying. for the the national competition in New York City. And in second place, receiving a reward of $1,000, from Normandy High School, Raheem Larry
1: and Damon McKinnon.
2: They were going to New York, and I will see you guys in New York and cannot wait for it. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez.
0: And great job, as always, Alex. And it might even be interesting to follow these guys one more time before that event. Go up to St. Louis, get to know these families, because what a story. You know, the dad was saying how moved he was and inspired he was, but he also said, boy, he's different than those other sons of mine. And I can only imagine the circumstances so many of the young boys in that particular school and girls go through. And thanks for all the fine work that the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship does for at-risk kids And for kids who wouldn't know what entrepreneurship is, by the way, I'm in a middle-class, and upper-middle-class school district where I don't think most of the folks know what entrepreneurship is either, though at least there are any number of small and mid-sized business owner families in that school, and at least the kids can get to meet those families. But in some of the neighborhoods in this country, there's very little ownership of anything in their lives. And my goodness, that hope that can get breathed into the life of a young mind What's that worth? You heard their voices, and we're going to hear more from these two young men. This is Our American Stories, Rahim and Damon's story, and the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship story, here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and we tell all sorts of stories here on the show about music, art, business, history. But we especially love sharing stories that help us to develop lasting and healthy relationships from the start. One of our favorite guests is a medical doctor in North Carolina who does so much for so many, and she does so much more than treat symptoms. Her patients affectionately call her Dr. Rose, and we're so glad she's here to share some of her experience. Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein has been a practicing pediatrician, for 23 years, and director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16. They provide the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and they now care for 5,000 children. She is also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills, and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. Dr. Rose, welcome, and thanks, as always, for joining us.
5: Thank you for inviting me. You bet. Talk
0: to us about another kindergarten story this week, Dr. Rose.
5: Of course. I I had, once upon a time, a little rambunctious, sweet boy who was into everything, and his, his name is Jerry. You could tell he was just high-energy boy, and not that this should matter, but Jerry is black, and his mom and dad have... Worked very hard at educating themselves, and now they're white collar folks. Uh, mom works at a laboratory, uh, and, and she is a technical person. And Dad uh, works in, in an office as well. And both of them, like I've said, they've been very responsible, very good civic duty minded people. And they have just been such a pleasure for me to be able to treat and to see and to see him grow up when he was six uh, he was brought to me uh, because he was ending kindergarten and the teachers sent home a note and it said that that jerry wasn't doing well in school and that now instead of of uh meeting what he was supposed to uh in, in kindergarten that he was failing in all of of the kindergarten areas and that the teacher did not see a potential in jerry And therefore, she had to uh, bring that up to the mom, and that perhaps he needed to repeat kindergarten. It was just that he was too immature to to complete kindergarten at this point, uh, but that uh, she could just not see much potential in this young man. Well, mom comes in with this letter. Tears are coming down her face, and I realize to myself, I have an office full of children out there, but I have to stop everything so that I can talk to this mom and hopefully get this little boy's life back on track. And that's where I was many years ago. And I sat down and I looked over at Jerry and realized he has an ultimate potential and an ultimate outcome, and I don't know what that is. But I can see him being inquisitive and coming at me and, and being so affectionate, and he'd give me the hugest hugs whenever he saw me. And I still have pictures of Mr. Jerry when he was 3, 4, and 5. And I said, there is no way that any teacher at 5 and 6 years old knows for sure that this kid has no potential. And I held on to Mom's hands, and I said, she's wrong. She's wrong. I know it because you guys are investing wholeheartedly in your boy, and I see a very inquisitive, I would say smart boy because he talks, not not that he's he's saying every word correctly, but he talks like there's a lot going on in his mind and he's paying attention and he's learning every day. So I want to say that he's smart. But what I think your child needs is some extra structure and discipline and he needs to understand mom and dad authority and mom here it is you haven't asked me about this before but you're a little bit on the lenient side on the soft side with your little jerry and i think that it's time for you to allow for jerry to grow up to give him that structure to give him that authority and for him to understand that the buck stops with you. And then when he doesn't behave and he doesn't pay attention and he doesn't follow the rules, that there will be consequences. And you lay out what those consequences are because otherwise you're giving up tomorrow for today. And so we devised a plan so that he would understand how to sit and listen a little bit better and pay attention to his mama and to respect adults. And I said, I think, I think... That is what he needs most of all, because I think he's smart. And so I want to see him back periodically every month or two months just to make sure that he's keeping on track. And the mom would bring him back in every month or two months for probably about a year or a year and a half. And after that, the visits started to get more far apart and more far apart until I've been only seeing Jerry for about a year at a time at his annual checkups. So he came in just a few weeks ago and he brings over something very important. He tells me, Dr. Rose, I'm an A honor roll student and I'm thinking of going into AP classes. What do you say? Do you recommend me for AP classes? And I almost started crying. We remembered when he was doing so poorly, and his mom was doing poorly. And we said, you made your mom a proud kid. What a wonderful job your mama has done with you. She worked hard, and she brought somebody good to society. And I said, this is worth all of my doing, all of this work at my practice. Yep. Parents do not believe what the teacher says when she says that your child will not amount to everything, anything, because most of the time, just about 99% of the time they're going to be wrong. And so we keep on working and we understand that the Lord has a purpose with our kids and we add structure and authority coupled with love. And that is what this mom did.
0: Yep. And I think that when you said give up tomorrow for today, I think a lot of parents are making this really critical error, Dr. Rose, and what they need to do is give up today for tomorrow. That's right. And that's hard. It's hard. But what you said about being, well, lovingly uh, more, more disciplined and lovingly more authoritative, I think a lot of people, because they had experience on that other side of authority, Dr. Rose, that sort of brutal kind, and we've all experienced that too, where it's all authority and no love. And I think that there's a reaction to that often in a culture and also in an individual parent's case.
5: That's right. And that's what we were teaching before, before the child got to school, was for the child to be able to submit himself or herself to authority. So the kid got to school, and not that they behaved perfectly, they were still five-year-olds and six-year-olds, but the teacher could say, class, let's stand up and get in line so that we can go to the bathroom. And they would. And she could say, children, it's time to put your heads down on your desk, and they would. And all of that has been left behind because we don't think that it's proper for us to have authority over our children. And what happens when nobody is in control is that then the children are not in control, and because of that, they're not able to learn. And so many of these children are not taught that. They're just, just taught to play and to have fun and to enjoy their, their, their childhood. And there is time for that. That is a wonderful thing, but it can't be all of the things that we do. And so look at what you're doing. If When you give a discipline to your child, it doesn't hurt you. Even more, in a sense, than it's hurting your child, it's not necessarily going to get the job done because it should hurt us to withdraw something that we wanted for our child to have or to send our child to bed uh, without dinner and having to go to bed early uh, or having to go to bed for a week at 730 and, and not having an outing that was important. Oh, believe me, even as the mother of a teenager, it hurts me. And I don't have to tell my teenager that because she doesn't need to understand that she will have a knowledge of that herself when she grows up, her children, but we know this, and we bear the pain of it, and that means that that child is growing up, and we as parents are growing up too
0: indeed, if we're feeling that pain, we're growing up. Dr. Rose, thanks as always for all that you do.
5: Oh, always a pleasure. Thank you for allowing me with my little little bit of emotion to share about jerry he's such he he is such a jewel to me. And I'm so pleased that at this point in time, he is doing well and he wants to become a doctor. And in fact, I gave him uh, a book. Uh, It's Ben Carson's book, Gifted Hands. And I, I told him, I see Dr. Carson in you. I'd like you to read this. He started reading it the moment he took it out of my hands. And it was such a pleasure to see such Potential in this
0: young man. Well, that's that, that. That's what brings you to tears watching this. What was what everybody thought was a boy who couldn't amount to anything, uh, picking up a book like that. And you know, it's not going to surprise you, Doctor Rose, to find out he's a doctor too one day. This is our American stories, Doctor Rose's story, and these tremendous stories about parents and kids. As always, uh, Doctor Stein teaching parents how to be better parents. Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and it's time for our American Dreamer series where we've interviewed folks ranging from Mario Andretti whose family was forced out of their home in Italy and came to America with absolutely nothing Mario went on to be called one of the greatest athletes of the 20th century and the greatest race car driver of the 20th century and we also did Bernie Marino's life story whose wealthy family actually chose to leave Colombia just so that Bernie and his siblings could start from scratch and earn their own success earn their own dreams. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org and go to our American Dreamers series. There are many there and you'll love them. And today we're fortunate to be joined by Vale Horton, the founder of the medical device company Keen Healthcare and a guy who's disabled, but would just as quickly point out that we're all disabled. Vale, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: You bet. And I was fortunate to see Vale at a public event. There were many prominent speakers who I'd come to see and hear. But don't you love it in life when you go to see a band and the opening act, who you'd never heard, is maybe even better than the band you'd come to see, or at least is good? Uh, I was fortunate to bump into Vale's presentation, and it was stunning and indeed the best of the, of the weekend and thus his presence with us today. T- tell us, Vale, about your early life. Where were you born? Who were your parents? And talk to the audience about your early difficulties in, in your life.
1: Sure. Well, the most notable thing about when I was born is that I came into this world looking pretty darn funny looking. I uh, don't have any legs. And to be kind of paint the picture of that, my, my right side has no leg. There's just a, a little button there that the kids love to tease me about when they were younger. And on the left side, I have sort of a uh, about a uh, Uh, one foot long leg with with a real teeny tiny odd looking foot and and very strange two toes and uh, we all call that the flipper and then my left arm is just one big bone at a 90 degree angle so I can't touch my face. It's probably the most normal looking limb I have and and people are always surprised that, that when they hear that I can't touch my face with my left arm and then my right arm looks like a teenage mutant ninja turtle where it just has three fingers and And a very odd, strange-looking arm, but boy, it sure gets the job done. I was born in Southern California in a small town called Fullerton, California. And when I was born, uh, my parents made a very quick decision at that time that they uh, weren't going to be able to be my parents. And so they put me up for adoption, and I lived uh, six months in a foster home. And I remember... You know, as as much older, looking at my adoption file and reading how people articulated what my life was going to be like, and it was a pretty doom and gloom story. I was going to probably be in a home and, uh, you know, a, a 24-hour cared home and that uh, I would need a special school, and I don't think anyone was looking at, that, at my life at that time and saying, this guy's going to change the world for the better. And uh, a young couple in their mid-20s who had already had two of their own biological beautiful daughters uh, decides to adopt a boy. And growing up, they always said they had to buy their boy. They also said they found me in the banana section of the grocery store. But, uh, but primarily they said they had to buy their boy. And after me, they had a fourth child, a biological beautiful daughter as well. So three girls and one boy. And uh, growing up, uh, you know by parents who chose me uh, is so unique and so great because they they taught me how to be independent versus dependent and i 'm sure we'll probably get into some stories about that, but um those are the early years of my life
0: and lucky for you for these parents I mean my goodness and what are your, do you do do you have um sort of spiritual beliefs about these matters because my goodness some something put these people in your path. You had to believe that, I, I suspect.
1: Yes, right. Uh, I could say quite a bit on that. One story is that my when I met my biological father many, many, many years later at 19 years old, he, he always contemplated why I was born this way. And I always told him that God made me this way. And he said, no, he said, God allowed you to be made that way, but God didn't make you that way. And I got it I always corrected him, and i got to say, God absolutely made me this way. I am so lucky of my faith in God because, yes, as soon as I was born, um, you know, God had so many big plans for my life, and how great that, um, you know, he talked to the Hortons and had the Hortons adopt me, and uh, how great, throughout all of my life, I have such God-defining moments. And um, you got to look for them. Um, and in my life, it's a little bit easier to look for them just because my life is so visible, so to speak. But there are God moments throughout everyone's life. Some people are either open to it or some people aren't, but I'm absolutely open to it. And my faith is every day I live for God.
0: Well, it's a beautiful thing. And by the way, folks listening know that we, we tell every kind of story here, secular stories, faith stories and that's the beautiful and rich nature of the fabric of this great country. Believers, non-believers, all get together every day and share stories in their lives and workplaces and products and services. Uh, Tell me this about this remarkable family, though. You said, my parents chose me. Um, Just spend a little more time on that, because that is a beautiful statement.
1: I I don't know. I don't know. I've never been asked that question, Lee. Um, My parents chose me. I have four children, and I can't imagine myself going and adopting a baby boy without legs and without arms. It's, it's a huge task. I mean, if you look at that for face value, who on earth would do such a beautiful and courageous thing? And they did, and they didn't have to. And where that thought even entered, I've tried to ask them, I said, why on earth did you adopt me? And and they almost don't have an answer. It's like it's like God just did it.
0: Yep. I think no I, I think like, Vale, I think you just hit it. God just did it. And when we come back, we're gonna continue this remarkable American story, this beautiful story. Vale Horton, his life story. After these messages, this is our American stories. Habib, and this is our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Vale Horton. We left off talking about these remarkable parents, who, as Vale told us, chose him, chose me. Vale, this, this had to be a, a not only the defining moment in your life, but obviously, it, it in, a, in a sense gave you life. Uh, talk about the, the 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 impediments and the things you had to deal with as it related to your peers. And to other people. I mean, other people were constantly coming up to you. They had to be laughing. They had to be giggling. They had to be saying things. How did you, as a particularly young person, cope with that?
1: I didn't have to start coping with that, Lee, until I was in junior high. Um, My parents and my sisters and my siblings had to cope with it more than I did. Um, And the reason is, is because I didn't know or I didn't realize everyone was staring at me and as a kid, I almost thought it was cool, like it probably inflated my ego a little bit, like, wow, all these people are looking at me. Um, I remember when I was four years old tugging on my mom's shirt saying I want uh, legs, and so we, you know, living in Southern California, I went to UCLA and Stanford to get prosthetic legs, and at that time, 1981, uh, they were not looking at kids in my situation and putting them in legs, they were really putting kids in wheelchairs, and so it was my grandfather, Kelvin Keen Larson, my mom's dad, who said, uh, "Let's go to New York." And so, you know, I'm not sure how the finances worked. We were um, middle class, uh, fi- financial, financially speaking. Um, I remember m- my parents were in the farming business, and so I remember times where we would hang our clothes out to dry uh, because it was a bad crop, and I remember uh, good years where we would take a family vacation. Um, in a good year, but but at any rate, somehow we got to the Rusk Institute in New York and we stayed in the Ronald McDonald house and there. they fitted me with prosthetic legs and I and I and I walked on crutches and um, and even going to preschool, um, you know, and being in legs with crutches, I, I still, even though there was some laughing or whatever, uh, I, I, it didn't really affect me. It wasn't until junior high where human nature takes a turn for the worst and it goes from that innocent child to very mean very competitive and and very selfish yep. and at that time all the way through my life even in the business world uh you know even where i'm at today i experienced that i have people in today's world calling me a white privileged american and my first job was at 10 years old I paid $300 a month to go to a private junior high school. Um, I look at my children. I couldn't imagine charging them $300 a month to, to have them go to a private junior high. So I paid for my own private junior high uh, where they get white privileges beyond me. But, but at any rate, um, lots of obstacles. And, and to pivot a little bit, had I stayed with my biological family, I would have been an I'm sorry baby. And the fact that I was adopted and given a fresh start and that someone chose me, I was, I was, I was able to, to set a course where I wasn't really disabled in the sense of my physical being. I have tons of disabilities. I'm a control freak. I push my kids too hard. I eat to feel good. But, I, but, 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 but because I was adopted... And and people said, "Oh my gosh, what a neat thing you adopted this baby boy without legs and funny looking arms." I had the opportunity to live a very celebrated life. Versus, have I had I stayed with my biological family? The natural reaction of society would have been, "Oh, I'm so sorry." And so, yes, I'm disabled, um, and and yes, there've been challenges. I'll never forget going from the most popular person in high school to. Uh, a disabled person who everybody looked at me in co- my first year of college and thought I had tubes coming out of my body and, and that and that uh, you know uh, uh, that I that I didn't know how to uh, fart. I hope farts okay on the radio, but but, <laughs> but, but, but but you understand what I'm saying, you? Yep. So uh, I really had a hard time adjusting to uh, a different culture where everyone treated me disabled and. I live my life having to train people on how to interact and, and be with me. I have to, when I go in and out of uh, grocery stores or, or, or any kind of store where there's a door and someone wants to open the door for me, I have to teach them and educate them, no, 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 make me open the door for you. And, uh, and usually that sets them back a little bit. But, um, yeah, that's a little bit about how the disabled, you know, being disabled and, and, and growing up, how that, how that was.
0: Well, and by the way, doctors had initially told your parents you'd never be able to walk, and you were lucky to have not only parents who weren't, I'm sorry, baby parents, um, but they were almost anything's possible parents, and let's let's run this down, and, and lucky for you. Let's talk about an early moment in your life that shaped you, when your adoptive mother put the cereal way up in the top of the cupboard where you couldn't reach it. Pick up the story from there, what you learned from it, and the impact it had on you. Sure.
1: You know, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's hilarious. It's kind of like as a family, you know, 40 years later, we're, we're all looking around. Why in the world did we store the cereal there? But sure enough, we did. We stored the cereal in the very top shelf, just underneath the ceiling. And I remember asking my mom, Mom, can you help me get down the cereal? And she said, no, I believe you could get it down yourself. So when you're sitting on the floor and you're looking at the ceiling it's virtually impossible to consider how I'd get that box of cereal down. And so uh, doing the impossible is, is really the emphasis of this story.
0: You know, by the I, way, I, I love talking about, you know, I, my, my dad and my family have spent a lot of time in inner cities. My dad was a great basketball coach. And if you ever notice, no one lowers the bar on inner city poor kids as it relates to sports. They, uh, they know there are sad stories. They know there are tough circumstances. But when you come into that gym, it's give me 10 push-ups. We're going to be the best we can be. And there's something about the diminished expectations that get thrown on people who have so-called disadvantages that disadvantages them even further. Talk about that.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I know that with my kids. I mean, in today's world, our neighbors, our friends, our people at, at, at school – They they are really judgmental about how we parent our four kids. And it's shocking to me because they're four fabulous kids. They're great athletes. They're great academically. um, They're great more so than athletes and academics. They're great at their passion. We have a, a thespian child who's one of the most beautiful singers and theatrical people, but people get very uncomfortable with how I push them. I've uh, started and led several companies, for-profits and non-profits, and I'm in Portland, Oregon, where there's, um, you know, there's a real easy culture and judgment of, of not liking corporate America. But i got to tell you, what I do for a living isn't drop a bunch of money to the bottom line. What I do for a living is I hire great people, and I help put them on a course where they're reaching their maximum potential. And I've started a nonprofit called Insight, and I help those people reach their maximum potential. And that gets very hard and awkward at times because there is such a scary culture in this country and in this world where if you push someone to their potential, you're doing them harm and you're abusive. And it's just shocking to me. It's not my makeup, it's not how I'm wired, and it's not in any way what I'm about.
0: Yeah, I think there's actually I think there's actually a cultural battle going on in this country right now about how we raise kids, about whether we create entitled kids or whether we push our kids to be self-sufficient and independent kids. And I think in the end why we push well there are a couple of reasons. We don't want them to squander their God-given talent. And moreover, if something were to happen to us as parents, I always tell my parents who I think fawn over their kids too much, what happens if you get hit by a truck? Can your kids manage their own lives? Val, that's a big question, and my goodness, your parents knew and worked hard early to make sure that you could manage your own life.
1: They did. They, they, they made me, they didn't make me in a harsh way. I mean, at times they probably did, but they really pushed me to do the absolute impossible. And, and, you know, to follow up, I ended up getting down that box of cereal, and it was the best bowl of cereal I ever ate because I worked my butt off for it. And it was impossible, and I achieved the impossible. Um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. There, There is a cultural battle going on. Um, I do a lot of work uh, for two organizations, Flourish Now and the Foundation for Government Accountability, that helps reform welfare and helps people get jobs. And um, the the culture out there that America needs to know is we have a welfare country that is rotting our spirit and rotting the innovation and the entrepreneurship that this country was founded on. And uh, I don't know if you'll ask me more questions on that, but...
0: um, Oh, we will, Val. After this message, we're going to dig into that. We're talking to Val Horton, the founder of the medical device company Keen Healthcare. We're going to talk about how this man became an entrepreneur and, more important, what he's now doing with his life to inspire others, particularly others caught in the bind of lack of work. There are so many men and women in this country who are now permanent, labeled permanently disabled, collecting disability, when in the end they could and can be working. They just don't see the options, and people have told them there's no hope. But there always is, and there's no more hopeful story than Vale Horton's. More about his story here on Our American Stories after these few messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we continue our conversation with Vale Horton, the founder of medical device company Keen Healthcare. And Vale, we were just talking about uh, your life. We were getting right into the middle stage. Uh, and this healthcare company, how did you, of all people, become an entrepreneur? Talk about that. I think
1: I was an entrepreneur when I when I came out of my mom's tummy, and uh, and I, I know that from seeing the entrepreneurship of my kids, but my first job was at 10 years old selling newspapers. I became the number one paper boy in the Coachella Valley, and there wasn't any person that walked into the grocery store who wasn't asked, excuse me, sir or ma'am, would you like a desert sun? And whenever I was asked to work on a holiday weekend, I always said yes, and um, I became the number one paper boy. I... When I graduated from high school, I had uh, well over $12,000 in savings. Um, I'll never forget going to uh, uh, my parents, said that I needed to figure out my health care situation after I was 18. And I went into the Social Security office and I said, I'd, I'd like to see about getting um, some health benefits for being disabled. And they said, Well, do you have over $2,000 of assets? And I said, uh, I said Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then they said, "Well, can you give that to someone that you can tr- uh, that you trust so that you have zero assets or less than two thousand dollars of assets and we can not only give you health benefits but we'll also give you a monthly stipend and I said, uh, "No, thank you," and uh, walked out of there and, and ever since then I've, I've been an entrepreneur. I owned a, uh, a detailing company in high school where I would do the inside of cars, and my buddy would do the outside of cars and we would develop a portfolio of customers. And once a week, we would go clean their car for 10 or $12. And in some cases, we would detail their car for $60. And um, when I graduated from college, I'd walked on crutches from the age of four to the age of 22. And all those years walking on crutches, crutches are the same as pirates and peg legs. There's really been no innovation at that time, 2002. From 2002 through today, you'll see some pretty cool looking crutches and and crutches actually have taken a step up from your common wooden stick back in the day of pirates and peg legs. And so um, I had developed osteoarthritis in my shoulder and carpal tunnel in my hands. And I went on a venture to uh, develop a better crutch. And we put a shock absorber in it and we made the bottom of the crutch always have 100% ground contact Even when it when it's at an angle. And those two small innovations and that we made them cool looking. I was tired of people always saying, What happened to you? And we wanted people to say, Hey, those are cool crutches. Where'd you get those? And so we started out as a crutch company and realized that there was no incentive to innovate, manufacture better medical equipment. And that's why you see all the elderly using a walker where they get their fingers stuck when they close the walker and it's handicapped gray and it's it's just a piece of junk. And you see people, society has said, oh, throw a tennis ball on the back of a, t- of a walker so that it doesn't fall over and cause you to fall over when you go from carpet to tile or through a doorway or whatever. And so there's just no innovation. I grew up my whole life where duct tape was my best friend in order to keep me mobile and comfortable and safe out in the community and active. And so I started innovating all sorts of medical equipment, and I grew the company to uh, well over uh, $10 million in revenue and 55 employees. And we manufacture and distribute durable medical equipment and supplies, everything from liquid food and incontinence and products and, uh, and innovative wheelchairs and Hospital beds and mattresses and all sorts of neat products. And um, it's all for increasing the safety, mobility, and comfort of the elderly, disabled, and injured. And uh, we're having a lot of fun, even though healthcare works against us in such huge and dramatic ways. We, yeah, we, in- indeed. We're swimming upstream the entire time.
0: Well, it's interesting, you know, just to take a little bit uh, of, a, of a back on your, just to go back a little bit on that conversation. And the story you were just telling, you had that moment where a government official was basically telling you, you know, that money you earned and saved, go get rid of it. And if you do the wrong thing, which is, you know, lie about your wealth, we'll go ahead and give you stuff. And you had the uh, innate knowledge to know that was a really bad deal for you. And by the way, it's also a bad deal for the government. But where did that come from that you were able to say, nah, that doesn't work for me?
1: I don't know. I think living life without legs and living life as disabled as I am from the perspective of, you know, how society labels a disability, I, I, uh, I have such a great common sense street smart, such a, a phenomenal emotional intelligence. Um, I'm not the smartest as it comes to books, but as far as emotional intelligence, street smart and common sense, in that situation, there's no way that made any common sense and it had nothing to do with any goodness whatsoever and and all it did was promote me to just stop yep, it, yep. It, 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 i felt my life i felt like had i said yes my life i would have died right then
0: yeah and i think many people have been at this crossroads in their life hell and they've just gone down the wrong road and it's a shame that we have a government that sometimes promotes the wrong choice for people. And it's tragic, actually. At the age of 32, you decided to get around very differently. You decided not to use the crutch you invented along with prosthetics. You decided to just, well, as you put it in that conference, go legless. Why? What do you mean by that? And how have you gotten around since?
1: I was 32 years old, and uh, I have four children when the children were in preschool and their friends would say, what's the matter with your dad? Because uh, in the prosthetic legs and the crutches, you could see that something was wrong with me, but you couldn't really know what was wrong with me. And so my kids in preschool would, would have all their friends say, what's the matter with your dad? They kind of wanted to know, why do I walk on crutches? Why don't my legs exactly move like everyone else's? And so... I always told my kids, it's a, it's a little bit of a white lie. I would t- tell them to tell their friends that I was eaten by a shark. And um, and boy, did that turn it, you know, that gave my children so much self-esteem because it's the coolest story ever. And, uh, you know, when the kid turned five years old, I had to have that uh, face-to-face conversation of I wasn't eaten by a shark. I was, I was born this way. But, um, but at any rate, I was dreading one of my trips to China. I, I go to China uh, once every two years. And uh, it's like being in your shoes for 54 hours. And when you're in your shoes for 54 hours straight, you can't wait to get your shoes off. I couldn't wait to get my legs off, and and it's just exhausting. And I was dreading one of those trips, and my, my wife said, why don't you go? No legs. And had you asked me at that time what's more comfortable, I would have said legs is more comfortable. With the exception of this trip to China. And so I did. I went, no legs. I went on my skateboard and I realized I'm faster, I'm more mobile, and it's good for the world to see. When I'm on my skateboard in a Chinese airport, I don't know if you saw the movie Cars, yes. where they yep. go cow tipping and the tractor, okay. uh, you know, when Lightning McQueen his engine and all the tractors roll over and smoke. Yep. And yep. An entire. An entire airport filled with thousands of people, they stop in their tracks and you see smoke coming out of their ears. (laughs) People like me don't exist in China. When you can only have one child and you want that child to take care of you when you're older, I mean, I, I don't know. I can't speak from actual statistics. I can only speak from street smarts, but people like me in China don't exist.
0: Hold that thought, and we're going to come back after these moments. This is Lee Habib, and we're talking to Val Horton, the founder of the medical device company Keen Healthcare. This is our American Dreamers series here on Our American Stories. More after these commercial messages. our American stories and our final segment in this fascinating hour-long conversation with Vale Horton his story here on our American stories our American dreamer segment my goodness is this an American dream story or what and vale you know we were just talking about that experience you had in that airport in China and you know when you were at that seminar my dear friend of mine had asked you a question and he had said essentially you know you know Vail, when you're on that skateboard and I'm standing up high, it's a little awkward for me to greet you. And, you know, it must be awkward for you. Did you ever think about getting on those crutches and making it more comfortable for all of us up here? And it was, a, it was an interesting question. And, uh, Vail, your response was great. You said, hey, pal, I, you know, I'm real busy. That sounds like your problem. You need to get over it. And the whole place laughed. And my friend has been telling people that story for a very long time, and uh, and thanks for doing that for him. He needed a lift at that moment in his life. He had just recently lost his dad, uh, who he was very close to. At the age of at the uh, at, at a certain age in your life, Vale, you had to be starting to think about love. You had to start to be thinking about kids. And uh, talk about the woman in your life. Uh, talk about your family and your kids. Did you ever think when you were young that you'd be not only an entrepreneur but a father? Uh, the,
1: I had two fears in life, Lee. I was scared that i would never get married and i was scared that i would never be able to be a kid i was i i, I thought to myself how in the world if i was alone with the baby get the baby to the hospital in the a, in a case of an emergency and um i remember going home one day and saying to my sister who was in uh, a freshman in high school at the time saying uh you know being on my soapbox thing i could never get married and and she said uh you know, of course, she's a freshman in high school. She said, of course, you could get married, stupid. You could marry some bum off the street. And for whatever reason, her response uh, created a notion in my head where she was right. I could. I had money. I, I, I could provide. And then I could get married. And, and so I started playing a game where I would say, I'm going to ask a girl on a date or to a dance. And then I'm going to ask a prettier one. And then I'm going to try and lay a kiss on. and And then I'm going to... You know, do another kiss and prettier and prettier. And I don't know if, if you know, you guys can, uh, you know, if, well, all that to say, you, you wouldn't believe the wife I scored. She's beautiful, absolutely drop dead gorgeous. And wow, she's, uh, she's, she's passionate and full of life. And um, she, you know, behind every great man, there's a stronger woman. And that saying that is so true in my life where I was fortunate enough and worked hard enough to, uh, to have a wife that's very much stronger than me. And, um, and as far as the parenting goes of babies, I don't know how to articulate it other than you know, using the example of, of a mama cat and how she would grab the mama you know, the baby cub with her mouth and, and walk it to wherever it wanted to go. Of course, I didn't grab any of my children with my mouth. But I just used the body that I have to get the kids into the car and into the into the car seats and into their cribs and in and out of cribs and high chairs and for whatever reason I just made it work. When you when you when you when you go, this is what I have to do, and you just go in that direction, it just works. My mom always taught me, you know, you hit things head on, and so uh, as a parent, that's exactly what I did, and it, it, I have four wonderful children, and of course I'm biased, but oh, they make me cry at, at those fatherly moments all the
0: time. Lucky you. and you, So you recruited a great woman in your life. You've, you, you didn't recruit kids, but you, you created some great kids. You have some great kids. Let's talk about recruiting your, your people at your company because you have some unique ways of, of recruiting. Uh, talk to folks about that who are running businesses or running anything, frankly. What are your recruiting secrets uh, to success for your company? Uh, The
1: first interview question I always ask is, when's your first job? And I don't care if it's babysitting. I don't care if it's mowing the lawn. I don't care if it's drawing pictures at four years old and selling it to neighbors. But the the people who had jobs from six years old to 15 years old, those people you want to hire. And then a very cool secret that I'll give you guys that if anyone said, is there a secret? The secret that I believe that isn't out there is I love hiring middle children. children in the middle have to do put in extra effort to get in front of their parents' radar. the baby's always on their parents' radar, and the oldest child's always on the radar, but the middle child has to work harder and be more creative in order to get the attention of their parents and so I love hiring middle children um, I love hiring people that parents worked their tails off. Um, and, and every business I've started, there are businesses that I've started that I don't necessarily lead at this time. Every business that I am actually in a leadership role of, um, I'm a big believer of results. And the person's either performing or not performing. And if the person's not performing, they're unhappy. And so the sooner you cut them loose, not in a negative way. It has nothing to do with being negative. But the sooner you, conv- you, you let go of someone who isn't driving results, it's better for them. They get to go find another opportunity where they can le- choose to learn and grow. Yep. And so we're a, we're a cult- culture that is, if you got it and you're good, go for it. Uh, we've got people that started out as part-time uh, washers of equipment um, to Tim, he's now the chief operating officer of a of a twelve twelve million dollar company. So, um, you know, we we love those stories. We have people who helped start Keen uh, that are now uh, own their own law firm with multiple offices and a hundred attorneys uh, at the law firm that they own and started. So everyone. For the most part, everyone who chooses to be a go-getter has done phenomenally well, either within the organization but even beyond the organization.
0: That's a a great story for us and for anybody to listen to and learn from. Uh, Let's talk now about uh, public policy, if we can. And we don't do a lot of public policy here on this show, only when it really matters and when it, uh, it has to do with the culture. And you said the C word before, and I actually think it's a word that shocks people and scares people, this word culture. Uh, But the culture of work, you know, if you ever get a chance, Vale, Martin Luther King gave one of his greatest speech, and it's called the Street Sweeper Speech. And he basically talked about the efficacy of work and that work was godly, work was important. And he said, if you're going to sweep streets, sweep them like Michelangelo would paint buildings. And he goes on and on with these beautiful metaphors about the power, the transcendent power of work that it gives man meaning and women meaning It teaches them to bind and bond with their community. And then it allows them to be breadwinners for their family. Um, Fundamentally cosmic stuff. And now we have a record number of people collecting disability in this country. Um, Able-bodied and not able-bodied people who could be working, who are not working and are being paid by our government to not work. Uh, Talk about that. Uh.
1: Where do I begin, Lee? I mean this you're hitting my you're hitting my ultimate passion. I love God, I love my family, but as in regards to my country, my country, our country, oh my word. All of humanity not all of humanity, that was wrong of me. So much of humanity is wanting to be disabled. They're wanting a label of being disabled. Different and a label that says I need special circumstances. We are creating a culture, we are creating a culture, a significant culture, I believe, where people are looking for a label to be special. And we need to get over being special. Yep. Handicapped people wanted me to help them sue, and I just don't do it. Of course, there are bad eggs out there. I'm not disagreeing with the evil or the bad eggs, but holy mackerel, we've got a society and a culture and an America where we incentivize people to not work. And the amount of handicapped spots at any public location has gone from one or two to, you know, Costco's and Sam's Clubs, where there's 50 parking spots. For disabled people, and you watch the people go in and out of the disabled parking spot vehicle, and they're walking. I mean, it's one out of fifty that's truly disabled. I park in handicapped spots occasionally, but it's only because I'm, uh, you know, um, skating the fine line and being totally wrong because I shouldn't be parking in disabled spots. I should be parking in the furthest away parking spots so that I could get the exercise. But 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 lazily and in a hurry, I, I you know I call it a handicap benefit. I'll park in that spot. I don't have a handicap placard. I'll never get one because I have to get one every six months, because because they only give me a temporary one, and uh, I'll never get one because uh, I just I don't believe in 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 I believe there are certain circumstances where someone on oxygen. Um, or or an elderly who really is so immobile that you have to have a parking spot. But but no, so much of, of society is, is wanting to park in the handicapped spot rather than get the exercise and make the right decision.
0: This has been an utter delight. We're, we're out of time and our hour, but I think a lot of people are nodding. A lot of people are nodding their heads. You want the truly needy people to have that special circumstance, but my goodness, we all see with our own eyes what we see. And we nod, and we wonder, and we're not happy about it. But if you say something, you're that bad apple who dared to have judgment or exercise your opinion. Uh, we've been talking to Vale Horton, the founder of the medical device company Keen Healthcare. This has been our American Dreamers segment. And, Vale, thank you so much for the time. You're welcome. Thank you, Lee. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.